Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Murphy, how you doing, brother? I am doing okay. My hands are washed. The house is more or less under control. The six-year-old has been cornered for an hour. So I'm ready to do a little hacking and tapping with our special guest. We brought him back, you know. The, the ringmaster of, of the circus, yeah. the uh, lord of the recount, John Heilman. Hey, brother. Hey, man. How are you guys doing? I got to say, after listening to Rob last week, I figured I'd be out of a job here because you know, <laughs> the, the dude, like, I, first of all, I was not sure either one of you would be able to do another episode because he blew the doors off the place and then i thought to myself he said he set a very high standard for all the rest of us my god pressure's on yeah well we had to choose carefully because we knew people would be listening this week and uh, we had to have a real pro in here <laughs> absent that we grabbed you yeah I, that no, guy was uh, sick so by the time we got down to the h's it was pretty much uh, <laughs> one one pick hitler's nephew or you and so here you are by that standard i'm by that standard i'm a qualified 160 <laughs> days guys 160 days from the election, 114 days until people somewhere in America start voting on early votes. Uh, Joe Biden has come outside uh, a kind of political groundhog situation to signal that the general election is on. And it feels like, and I know, uh, John, you did a... Um, you did a thing on the, re on, re on the recount the other day about where things stood. I mean, the dynamic is pretty good for Biden right now. I mean, look, you think about the, the core six battleground states um, and those all six of those states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona. Why are they the core six battleground states? They're the all six that both sides are advertising in right now. You know, you guys know you're the hacks, right? It doesn't matter what the campaigns say. Watch what they do. Where do they send to the candidate? Where do they spend their money? They're not sending their candidates anywhere right now. So where are they spending their money? Those six are the ones. And all six of those are, are states that Trump won in 2016. They're all they're the six narrowest margin states for Trump. And if you look at the at the polling over the last and, you know, with all the caveats about polling. But if you look at the polling in those six states, there's only one North Carolina where Biden is not leading. And in some of those states like Arizona, he's led in seven consecutive polls this year. So. I mean, look, is Trump, I mean, he's, you know, I know you guys went through some of the ad spending by market by market on one of the recent episodes of this show that tells you how carefully I listen. But the reality is you can't help but think that if Trump is spending money in those six states plus Iowa, that is a defensive posture by the, by the incumbent. And he's not spending money in any of the states they said they were going to put in place, not spending money, money in Minnesota or in New Mexico or in Nevada or in New Hampshire, which are all these states that... They said six months ago they were going to try to cl claw into the Republican column. So, I mean, how do you read that other than the state of the race right now? If you just look at what they're actually doing, not what they're saying and not what the media is saying, but what they're doing, it looks like the Trump campaign is behind and knows it's behind. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Biden has the best asset you can have right now in American politics. He's not Trump. But the campaign is about to happen to him. I mean, I totally agree with the state targeting. One of the things we talked about last week, just to hang a lantern on it, even some of the markets in those states that swing where, where Trump has spent are defensive markets like Grand Rapids, Michigan. So it's interesting to me that not only is the war happening in, in his Electoral College front lawn, he's, he's even defending kind of the corners he ought to have. So that's all very good sign for Biden. But this is the beginning of the beginning here as far as the voter campaign. And we'll see if Biden is ready for that.
Yeah, I mean, the question is really how uh, how shakable the dynamic is, you know. I mean, obviously, uh, Trump is universally known. People have their attitudes toward Trump. The question is whether he can somehow shape their attitudes toward Biden. I mean, one thing I'd be concerned about in these polls, and this is consistent through all the polls, is he is, in fact, Trump lagging behind his performance in 2016 among uh, older voters, which was a core constituency for him. You have to wonder whether the coronavirus hasn't, uh, hasn't accentuated that because the flip side of his let's open up thing is, hey, we can throw these old folks, a few of them, on the junk heap if we need to, to get this economy moving. But there's definitely a feeling of insecurity among uh, those voters that may be uh, that may be splashing on him. Um, there are a lot of warning signs for him. So he's just got to go ballistic on uh on biden and i think that's what's going to happen i think you're right mike that uh oh of course yeah he's going to open up a big can of whoop i think that i mean the word on the hill is that uh they are going to uh unleash a you know torrent of subpoenas maybe as early as this week uh lindsey graham uh and ron johnson respective chairs uh on Biden on the Obama world and so on. How effective you think that that will be? Well, you know, I mean, look, do I think it do I think that in a moment of pandemic and 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 the and the connected question of can you resurrect an economy that's, you know, north of 20 percent unemployment and is going to be even according to the president's own advisors, probably in that same place um, by the time we get to October, does does Burisma um, Hunter Biden, you know, the, the fake Obamagate scandal, does that do anything to move any votes that Donald Trump needs to win these states? I mean, does it rile up his base? Maybe. Does it maybe distract? Does it, does it if, if the Biden campaign lets itself get lured into into a stupid, as, you know, Murphy's always talking about, you know, Beltway food fights, if they decide to get lured into that, can they make mistakes that could hurt them? Yeah. But it seems hard for me to imagine that, you know, all of us have been trapped. I've been trapped in New York, New York, and this is the time of year in an election year when I would normally be out in the country talking to voters and in battleground states all the time. I'm not doing that right now. And that's one of the biggest handicaps that we all have right now is we don't get to have any contact with what, with the actual human beings that much uh, who are outside of our neighborhood. But I just, I find it really hard to imagine that those issues are issues that are going to move persuadable voters. Yeah. My guess is the people in the neighborhood where you're hanging out aren't necessarily the typical voter, but that's just my guess. They're, they're like, well, let's let's say they're they're not. There's not. I don't see a lot of MAGA hats in uh, in, uh, in, in in my hood. Let's put it that way. That's true. <laughs> I think the uh, the Washington food fight machine will continue, but that's sort of background noise. I mean, Trump will keep winning the Republican primary by howling about Obama, all the stuff he always does. But John makes the key point: Will it move any of the big numbers? I think there is a there is a vulnerability for Biden because he has what. Uh, we we drunken Hollywood hacks would call a first act problem. The character of Biden, where is he from? Why is he doing this? And what does he want? And that's incumbent on the Biden campaign to fill yeah. in that vacuum. Because as you all know, campaigns are about new information. So if there's a lot of noise coming out of D.C., 
it'll work in the Republican base, but some of it could creep in about, you know, why did Honor Biden get all that money? It, it reinforces corporate Joe, Washington Democrat, swamp master, and it's up to the Biden campaigns to fill that void with other information, and they've been a little late. I, I know they have challenges from the pandemic and, and how do you communicate now. We can talk about his appearance, but it's hard. Well, and gearing up. I mean, honestly, gearing up, uh, they they didn't they had a kind of lethargic primary campaign it worked out for them for a variety of reasons including some inherent strengths of of Biden with African American voters but they didn't have the kind of operation you need to take on the Trump machine you've got Jen O'Malley Dillon over there the new manager and she's furiously staffing up but they're playing catch up uh, over there hey you know one thing that I uh, saw in there was a Quinnipiac poll last week that had Biden with a big lead there was a Fox poll also that had him with a pretty significant lead which pissed Trump off uh, no end because he thinks that uh, Fox owes him better polling but uh, in well, they this, ought to be bent like everything he sees <laughs> this in this view. Quinnipiac poll always hilarious though to watch Fox team off but anyway go ahead <laughs> The, the, in this Quinnipiac poll, they asked, would you say that Donald Trump cares about average Americans or not? 42% yes, 56% no. Then they asked the same question about Biden. 61% yes, 30% no. Uh, that would be a worrisome number to me if I were over there in, in the Trump land. And I don't know, you know, oh, maybe yeah. they can shake that, but. Uh, that's a pretty strong number. I mean, if he loses kitchen table and everything else, you know, and perception on the economy ties up with Biden, it's heading in that direction. He, he's just got nothing to work with except Biden mistakes, which are the unknown. Here's a little fact that I was just reminded of the other day. I think, David, somebody mentioned to me the poll you're talking about, right? When you guys ran for re-election in 2012, on election day, when we looked at the exit polls afterwards, in the four big questions that get asked in the exit poll, right? Um, strong leader, who can handle the economy better, who can handle foreign policy better, and who cares about people like you. Um, Obama lost three of those. Lost on the economy, lost on foreign policy, and lost on strong leader. The only one he won was cares about people like you, and he won that one overwhelmingly. In 2012, a year nothing like as, but, but as, as horrific as 2020 is for the American people, it, it was still the case that winning that one quadrant overwhelmingly was enough to let Barack Obama win in a, in a canter against Mitt Romney due to some of the disqualifying work that you guys did against Romney in the spring of that year. And I, I wonder if, if that year that was such a dominant f- factor, the empathy factor, the cares about people like you factor, whether that's not just going to be true exponentially in 2020, given the economic and, and, and health crisis that we're in the middle of, it, it seems like Biden will dominate on that quadrant also in this election, almost inevitably. And if that feels like a real ace in the hole for him as we proceed. I'd have to go, I'd have to go back and look at, uh, at some of those categories. But what is absolutely true is that uh, Romney had a significant lead over sort of ability to manage the economy. And it came with, you know, his background as a businessman and so on. Um, and the thing that uh, mitigated his advantage in that category was the that that fighting for the middle class cares about people like me because what it said was however he manages the economy he's more likely to manage it in a way that benefits me and the other guy is more likely to manage it in a way that benefits you know uh corporate america and so on and that was a really decisive advantage in an election that was all about the economy. This election also is going to be about the economy. And, and Trump retains still 
a lead over. It's one of the few areas he has a lead on Biden is on 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 sort of macroeconomic competence, you know, holdover from from apprentice days from the economy that's grown uh, up until February. But uh, but this could be the offsetting factor. And it shrunk from the NBC poll, you know, to the Fox poll, that, that advantage was almost margin. I mean, Biden doesn't have to win that, but if he can take away Trump's advantage, and as you guys say, win motive, which is always, in, in my view, an incredibly important thing in a campaign. What if people perceive the motive of the candidate is? And if it's on my side as opposed to on the other side, that's the best weapon you can have. And the pandemic pain and Trump's kind of psychopathic, you know, inability to, to, to express or connect to it, I think, I think totally rolls the motive thing joe's way the people like you so you mentioned biden's uh you you mentioned that they're counting on biden's mistakes there was one uh on friday let's just for context take a listen to that well, you know, thanks so the- much that's really our time i apologize you can't do that to black media you i can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock okay oh oh i'm in trouble Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take you. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. So that created a big stir. By the end of the day, uh, Biden apologized for it. The Trump campaign went up with a million dollars in digital ads. Uh, they, the Times reported this morning that they had a big confab, digital confab, in which they spent uh, hours flaying uh, Biden for this. So here's my counterintuitive. Obviously, it was a gaffe. Um, and we should point out that Biden has been a gaffe machine throughout his whole political career. This isn't a new thing, okay? He's never been a precision instrument. But what he is is authentic. Uh, the fact of the matter is that people don't, they, they do think that he has been a strong advocate for the community. He has strong support in the African-American community. Polling shows Trump, for all his efforts, have, has made no headway uh, in the African-American uh, community. I just don't know how much this actually will hurt him with black voters. It'll, you know, it horrified yeah, white liberals. Exactly. It did. I don't think it cost him a single vote. I'm sure right now there's just a surge to Donald Trump. Uh, so I, uh, you know, the media is built in the cable era to cover every day of the campaign like it's the Hindenburg explosion. You know, they elevate trivia into a big thing because clicks and ratings, that's the nature of the business. Hell, I work there. So do all you guys. But it, it, it this thing was what they would say in accounting language. It was not material. It was noise. It's just like Pence unloading the empty box. The people who hate Trump want to get rid of them, you know, get a good laugh out of that. But then we go on to the next big trivial thing of the campaign. So Joe is capable of much more nuclear uh, gaffes than that. And I, I think this was a nothing burger as far as real effect on the election. But my question, Heilman, is do gaffes, do, will gaffes hurt him? I mean, they're, they're trying to develop the theme that he, um, you know, that he's not up to this. Um, how much do the gaffes actually hurt him? Well, uh, there's a few things to address here, and I'm gonna, I'll try to do them quickly. The first is like you got three white guys on this, on this, on this 
podcast right now, um, all self-admitted Caucasians. And I, I just was just noting the response to the comment that day. I, I saw some number of, of African-American reaction, African-American liberal reaction, which was not great on Friday. And, and including the host himself, Charlemagne, you know, was, did not love that answer. And I do think who said that he didn't think that Biden would lose any. I, I, I totally agree. And I, so like, I don't, I'm not, dis, I'm not on a totally different side from you guys. I'm not sort of saying like, Oh my God, it's a catastrophe. But I do think that it, it's going to be important for Joe Biden to get the kind of African-American turnout that Hillary Clinton did not get in 2016 and that the campaign knows that. And so making comments like that isn't helpful um, to that cause. And I, and I can tell you, I, I don't think it, it did not hurt Kamala Harris's stock. Stop. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think that this raises her profile as a VP? I think that the that that the that African Americans are more uh, are going to be more insistent about wanting to have African American on the ticket. There was already a lot of political logic pushing in that direction, and I think that if you thought that Kamala Harris was among the front runners previously, the main fallout from this thing on Friday is that it pushed her maybe into. I mean, I think she's always been the front runner, frankly, but. I think it, it made her, the politics of her choosing her are, are harder for Biden to resist now after having done that. But the other thing I'll just say, David, is I don't think the gaffes are the problem. It's not like the individual gaffes. Joe Biden is a gaffe machine, you're right. It's priced into the stock to a large extent, and I don't think people care. Trump obviously is a gaffe machine too. He says insane things all the time. So what is it, what is it if you're in Biden world, what worries you about that? What worries you about that is to go back to Murphy's point, which is, if the one thing that Trump still has is he's leaning on that strut, which is the, I'm an economic magician, I built the world's greatest economy, it wasn't, but that's what he says. There's still all that holdover, as you pointed out, David, from the apprentice days. He's a business type, he's a tycoon, he builds stuff. A lot of average Americans still see Trump that way. And he's leaning on that strut, which is, you might hate me, Donald Trump will say in October, but I am capable of rebuilding this economy and Joe Biden is not. And the, the, the central thing, right, that's just that's going to be his argument. And the central yeah. thing that Biden has to do is kick that strut out. If you can knock that out, there's nothing left for Trump. That's all he's got. Right. So yeah. the question then becomes, is Biden able to do that? Because that's where candidate performance is going to matter. Is Joe Biden yeah. a good enough candidate to kick that strut out? And when you see him make a mistake like he did on Friday, it's not the, this, the, the mistake qua mistake. It's an indication that they're that he's not necessarily the perfect candidate in terms of his ability to execute. So that's the issue. The issue is the issue is whether how much it's priced in, how much of it reflects uh, some, uh, you know, how much of it, uh, of it creates uh, the sense that maybe he's not up to it, and how much of it is just Joe being Joe and people casting it aside. I have to say, and I've been a big Kamala critic, but oh, what what sick irony if, in my view, a nothing burger gaff turns into a bad decision that turns into a material victory for Donald Trump, giving him a VP he can relentlessly work with. I mean, that that could be the gaffe that roared, roared so to speak. And I, I hope they don't stumble down that thing by overreacting to, to Beltway noise about me. Show me data when Trump breaks 12 percent of African-Americans, and I'll, I'll believe any of this. But I, I, I get the point that Biden, I think it boils down to this. Can they, as you did, uh, David, when you first talked about this, can they turn the gaffe machine, which is unfixable, into authenticity? Mm-hmm. Then it's a plus. And, and then, then they weaponize it, and it's a better race well, for Well, we shouldn't. I, I, I do want to go on to, to Trump's own issues in this regard. But before we do, you raise this issue. Heilman, you say Her, uh, Kamala Harris is the front runner. Uh, Murphy's right that this one 
this one gaffe, which is, you know, in the big scheme of things, we all live through this. It's like uh, what one uh, alderman I used to cover back in the old days in city council would call a pimple on the ass of progress. Uh, I mean, it's going to go away. <laughs> it's going to go away. But, uh, but, but, but tell me, explain the logic because there's a competing, and I think you guys probably represent both sides of this debate. There's a competing theory. One is that you need her to, uh, or a, a candidate of color in order to energize crucial elements of the democratic coalition. The other, and I suspect is Murphy's argument. In fact, you guys go, I'll just do the whole, I'll do all your parts. Uh, but, 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 uh, you know, that Biden is actually threatening to Trump because he's not threatening to a bunch of voters who Trump wants to scare and who Trump, right. you know, wants to play identity politics with. That's why they've been, you know, that's why he bought an impeachment trying to knock Biden out. And so don't rock the boat, pick someone who is, uh, is, uh, you know, going to sort of sail through uh, and don't don't be venturesome. I don't really see Kamala Harris as particularly venturesome. There are some really venturesome picks that he could make. I look at, you know, yeah. I look at who you gonna, Stacey Abrams, who are you going to put on the ticket is the first question is, are they do they meet the bar for the filter in the media of qualified to be president? And I think a woman who's been attorney general of the state of California and as a senator who ran for president has been vetted on the national stage and who we've seen has the capacity to perform well in a debate, basically the press will not say Kamala Harris isn't qualified, and the press will look at well, the next big thing she has to do, which is debate Mike Pence, there's a reasonable chance she can slice Mike Pence into little pieces. I'm not actually an advocate for this. I have thought that the two big frontrunners, for the same reasons, forgetting about identity politics, that Kamala Harris and, and Amy Klobuchar are people that Joe Biden likes, that he thinks would both be good governing picks, that they both have other material advantages and disadvantages, but both of them will clear the bar as qualified to be president, and both of them would be good in a debate. And that's all you basically need to do. And I think on, 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 the, on the, but in the balance, I think right now, there is a lot, a lot of people in Joe Biden's ear saying, you know, it would be good for you if you did not make the mistake Hillary Clinton made, which is to rely on at, on, on big African-American turnout in places like Detroit and Milwaukee and, and Philadelphia and then not get it in 2020. And they think that an African-American on the ticket would help in that regard. I'm not saying I think that's the dispositive or conclusive argument, but it's not a crazy argument. No, that's it. Do you go internal with turnout or do you go external? And of course, the media is obsessed with identity politics. It'll get covered through that lens in a good way, but it can also be a bad way. Trump tweets for two weeks about slave reparations, creates a huge stir about it, puts $20 million in those Detroit suburbs uh, and exurbs where Trump did very, very well. Believe me, take slave reparations into Macomb County. The danger offset is much better than a lift in Detroit that I think Biden will get anyway. So then... Uh, Biden will have to say, I'm not for slave reparations. And then Kamal will have to say, I'm not for many more either. But the leaks will come out, oh, tension in the African-American community, Kamala being forced to, where's our power, why not? Uh, and then, then we'll have stress on the campaign. And then we'll hear about Biden's wife never liking the attack that, that Kamala had in the one good day of her campaign. I disagree. She had two good days, an announcement and the day she ripped Biden's face off with what I thought was a cheap shot. So then we're going to be back to schism. I'm just not of the theory that you pick a running mate who's going to be in a central media drama vis-a-vis -vis you. 
I like the Clinton Gore theory of pick a worse version of yourself for a unified argument, young South, you know, <laughs> new Democrat. So I just wouldn't be hunting for risk if I were Democrats. And if Kamala or Cory Booker or anybody had had a lock on the African American vote, Biden wouldn't be nominee. So, you know, they're fixing a problem that is small on the list, in my view, and dangerous with a racist like Trump. I mean, this is the this is this is the tricky, tricky calculus of all this, because Biden is threatening to Trump for all the reasons I said earlier. And you were saying that um, to the people who Trump absolutely has, Biden isn't uh, isn't a threatening figure and they're going to do everything they can to make him a threatening figure. Um, Look, I think Harris is a pretty mainstream choice uh and uh but uh but i i i think this vp pick is more complicated for him than it has been for other candidates uh because a they're going to get more scrutiny than other vps have given his age and uh, uh secondly because trump is is as you point out looking for anything to uh to stir the pot one thing that he picked to uh, picked up on to stir the pot. Speaking of identity politics, was uh, on uh, on Friday when he uh, when he announced that he was ordering ordering governors across the country to open up <laughs> churches on Sunday. He then went and worshipped at the Cathedral of the Nineteenth Hole over the weekend. Uh, but well, we know God works through Donald Trump. Clearly, <laughs> that he's he's God's right hand on earth. Yeah, but it does tell you. I mean, you know, the evangelical. There's been a little bit of uh, uh, just a little bit of sagging among the e- evangelical voters as well. So, uh, you know, pure pace, pure pure based politics. I mean, sort of transparent based politics, but probably played with some of his base. Yeah, you know, I think the largest. Part of his coalition is clearly white evangelicals. So when in doubt, you know, even in times of plague and pestilence, uh, you know, <laughs> tell them to do whatever they want. So, yeah, Trump Trump is always going to play to his base. You know, he anecdotally feels that that's why he's the back to work guy, too, because those twenty six hundred counties that Trump won have been in general, not always more rural. And with the exception of some places, they've been late to the biological pain. So, of course, Trump's banging the snowflake drum, everybody go back to work, uh, while the denser, more urban counties, the 450 or whatever that Hillary won, many of them have had a tougher time early with the pandemic. So Trump will always, always be the you know cheap applause guy to his own folks, regardless of the bigger picture. I wonder if there's any apprehension over there about killing off your base. I mean, this is not good, good medical advice. I do just keep coming back around to the fact that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's now the day after Memorial Day. I mean, I know that all the rules don't apply to Trump and everything's like different according to not this group, but you know, the, if you listen to cable chatter, like you can't, you know, rely on any old rules anymore, but you know, an incumbent president who just is doing base politics all day long, every day, whether it's Obamagate or whether it's this thing you're talking about, David, we're not talking about now. It just doesn't look like me, you know, if you're not like in some states that you didn't that you didn't win last time, if you're not competing for some demographics that you didn't do well with. He's like, you know, he's hurting with 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 white non-college. He's hurting with seniors, as David pointed out at the very top of the show. He's hurting with uh, uh, with 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 men overall, you know, And, and everything he's doing right now is all just like feeding the base. And I just can't you know, it's getting late. It's it's the spring 
You know, the base if your base isn't locked down by Memorial Day when you're the incumbent president, you have some problems. Yeah, I thought that number about 30 percent of Republicans having doubts about him, you know, not primary voters, just self-identified Republicans having some doubts about him handling the pandemic was a tell because his base isn't big enough to begin with and his base is shrinking and he's doubling down on the shrinkage, the opposite of what he ought to be doing. Yeah, I, I, I think that that, you know, his theory and the theory of his campaign is a base only theory. It's a, that, you know, you just expand your base and expand your base and excite your base and you eke out victories. Um, but boy, they're running out of they're running out of runway here. And their, uh, their, their thing is they're going to go try to find these millions of white non-college voters who didn't vote for Trump in 2016. And they're going to they're going to dig those people out of the out of the dark corners and pull them out into the onto the onto the playing field this time. And, you know, I, I, I acknowledge it is the fact that there are there are tens of millions of white non-college voters who didn't vote for Trump in 2016. And so they are there is a target of opportunity there. But I you know, you come back around to the thing we started with, David, about the old voters. You know, you think about these older voters. You know, Trump is, you know, a large part of his disqualification strategy against Biden is to say he's 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 too he's senile, he's doddering, he's mentally infirm, he's incompetent. And you think about the fact that he's already bleeding with seniors to begin with. Does those those kind of arguments like ring well in the ears of senior voters? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a if you're gonna pull off that kind of disqualification against Joe Biden, you need to do it with a scalpel. And those guys have not seen a scalpel. All they ever see is is hammers and mallets. And- there are two theories on that. One is that the, that people, older people have a greater understanding of the infirmities of age and therefore <laughs> might be more subject to those arguments. Uh, the other is that they could resent it. Uh, I think his bigger problem with older people is that um, stability um, and security are important to those voters, and he doesn't look like a very stable um, uh, person, and they don't feel very uh, secure right now. And they remember presidents who could eat with a knife and fork. They have a longer historical frame, and they've, they've actually seen real presidents in their lifetime beyond you know pre-Obama, Clinton, even Reagan. You know, so the the Trump reality show is not the only movie they've seen, and maybe he doesn't hold up as well to those memories. Remember last week uh, when we were talking, I said we are headed for a big confrontation about the convention in uh, North Carolina, and we had a long conversation about that. I didn't think it would be in the next week, but uh, well, let's let's do that because we have the power to tell the future here, Swamis. So why don't we bring up our mind control? music and let's hear what we said last week what accent you know it seems to me we're headed for a big confrontation down the line here because he and his party are insisting they're going to have their convention in north carolina in charlotte in august that uh there's no question hell hell or high water we're going to be there we're going to have this convention the governor has said he can't see it the mayor of charlotte very concerned about it you can see this being kind of an epic clash that he promotes. Meanwhile, the Democrats the week before will do the responsible thing and have their convention remotely and so on. Snowflakes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is true that the president is, an, is a regular listener of Hacks on Tap. I think <laughs> we actually provoked him, uh, but now he's done it. He's basically sp- yeah. spent Memorial Day weekend challenging the governor, accusing him of partisan motives. Um, and uh, already Florida is raising its hand and saying, oh, we'll, we'll 
take the convention. But I, I guess they have to really figure this well, out. The, because the, the Florida Republican Party is ready to take it on. The mayor of Tampa was like, you could hear the roadrunner cloud as he dropped the phone and ran away from the reporter's question. It's a nightmare. <laughs> so, but yeah, the party functionaries there have been told to stand up and applaud, you know, the, the idea. Mar-a-Lago, what a wonderful thing. Clap, clap, clap. This thing is a train wreck because, well, first of all, just institutionally, you know, I feel bad and it's hard for me to feel bad for people who still work for Trump and the party. But I get party loyalty and the committee on arrangements that puts on the convention. They got totally blindsided. They were trying to figure out how to do some sort of hybrid convention in Charlotte. And then the, the buffoon in chief starts to text or tweet, I'm not even going to go like 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 it's a real estate deal. He can move. So he really undercut his own folks. I, I think somebody should resign and protest just for that, let alone the fact he's ignoring public health and putting cops and first responders in danger by packing them into an auditorium like that. So my guess is the governor of North Carolina will appropriately call his bluff. Hi, I mean, what do you think is going to happen with him? I really, like, I was just, I don't, I don't have a, I mean, I, I, I'm sitting here try, over the last week or so trying, trying to think through as I talk to various people on both sides about what they're thinking about, you know, trying to get this done and, I'm, I'm really, it's, a, it's testing the limits of my imagination what these kind of hybrid models are going to look like. It's clear that like Trump is not going to not have some event in which human beings are there to applaud him. So then the question becomes, where does that happen and under, and what does it look like? And, you know, the one thing that seems clear, I think, to Murphy's point is that, that, that the, the governor of North Carolina and particularly the mayor of Charlotte, um, who are both like not just Democrats, but pretty strong Democrats, and they are up for a fight on this. I do not think that they are going to just capitulate to what Trump wants. And it's not exactly clear even what that would look like um, exactly. I mean, uh, the thing that he obviously wants most, he's not going to have. You're not going to have 18,000 people in that arena um, without masks on, all going crazy for Donald Trump. But what's the, what, what is the, the, the middle ground, whether it happens in North Carolina or whether it gets moved someplace else? I can't help but think that this might actually get moved and mar-a-lago maybe not but is there some other place that he could go and do it in a place that's more pliant and more open to uh taking the kind of public health risks that trump is clearly willing to take at least with the lives of others i think there's some reasonable chance that this thing could actually get like take it out of north carolina and take it someplace else yeah i agree with that even if it just works out to be an elaborate rally uh he he will uh he will do it because it's become not only does he have this um, overweening desire to stand in front of adoring crowds, but it's become symbolic. It's like him not wearing a mask and him saying, open the churches. It's become symbolic of a guy who wants to say, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible because he is at war with his own government. He is at once, uh, he is at once uh, leading a government that is giving directives and guidance about how to open up and he is leading the resistance to it all at one time. But that is clearly where he is. And and this is a symbol of it. I mean, I thought the most incredible thing in the last 24 hours was when Brit Hume tweeted this mocking, this photograph of Joe Biden in a mask and mocked him for it and said something like, you know, well, now you, once you see this picture of Biden, you now know why Trump is so reluctant to be in public in a mask. Yes. And then Trump retweets that tweet. And I, and I, I thought at that yeah. moment, I don't want to overplay mm. it, but it felt to me like that was the moment where the mask debate is now clearly in the realm of culture war. I mean, it's been building towards that for a while, but when Trump is now retweeting images of Biden mocking him for doing what Trump's own government has told people to do, he's it's, it's now we're in the realm where this has nothing to do with anything other than 
If you are for the mask, you are a pointy-headed, lily-livered, sissified, uh, liberal intellectual. And if you're if you're a real man, you don't wear a mask. And that's what Trump is now doing. And I, I, I think we're going to get actually into some pretty ugly places because I can imagine Trump in the not too distant future starting to send out retweets, you know, where people start harassing people in masks and Trump will be for that too. And we're, we're starting to see reports of that around the country. We're seeing it yes. already. And, 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 and Trump coming down yeah. on the side of the, of the harassers does not seem to me like a, like that's an implausible thing that we could see relatively soon. No, this thing, this thing, this for, for a few weeks, he was the leader of a country that was uh, uh, facing an epic pandemic. Uh, and now he's fitted the whole thing because he saw which way the economy was going to go. He's fitted this thing into the culture wars where he feels most comfortable. I will say this on the mask, though. Um, I hope the Biden people find a better mask for Biden because it did kind of pull his ears out and gave him a very Jeff Sessions kind of look there. So they got to do better on the masks. But uh, he needed a cowboy hat to go for the Jesse James <laughs> thing. That, that would have been the spin. I didn't think it looked that bad. And I think it's a good fight for Biden that I understand biology and Trump doesn't because the, the, the virus does not respect political spin. It just marches forward. So we'll see what the world looks like in October. Ask him down in Alabama where they're having a surge down there uh you know in montgomery their hospitals are being overwhelmed by uh by the virus and we hope that that we hope that that improves this is not a partisan killer hey you know the thing on gaffes and maybe we've let's make maybe we've talked we do it every show (laughs) i know we're machines too but uh gaffes on tap you know it is kind of it is kind of amazing (laughs) i was gonna play this little bit of tape from friday of trump and remember, we're talking about a guy who suggested to America that ingesting Lysol might be the answer to all of this, who's sold more tablets of hydrochloroquine uh, than you could ever imagine. Than the mosquito. There, a little malaria joke for you there. All right, keep going. No, there but, no, no, but yeah, there, there was a gap. <laughs> Luckily, you did it under your breath. I'm sure no one heard. But let's play this little tape from Friday. And I tested very positively in, a, in another sense. So this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So, no, I tested uh, perfectly this morning, meaning, meaning I tested negative. <laughs> I mean, you know, every day he's out there. I don't know why, um, you know, I mean, I would just sort of, See the ter- our, our buddy uh, Robert Gibbs said uh, after the after the Lysol thing that Biden should just do twenty seconds of video saying, and he calls me confused. Uh, why not turn the tables on Trump, who says ridiculous things every day? Oh, I totally would. What I think this campaign could use right now is good old fashioned David Ogilvy print advertising. And hacks reflexively all roll their eyes. Oh, print it. But you do it right, you can set the agenda. If there were full page ads in newspapers, which are a lot cheaper now, but it would be amplified all over cable with double truck, both pages, left page, good, strong black and white photography of Biden, which, you know, authentically real, authentically strong. And then over is Trump with a poll quote of something stupid, authentically crazy. And then the next week, I like think everybody thinks there are still newspapers. Oh, there are, there are, there are a couple. There are a couple left. My point is, they still can set the agenda with with well written, sharp copy newspaper ads, which then is amplified over cable TV, which you guys know is looking for a trivial fight every day. So give it to them. But anyway, it, it, I would yeah. go on offense. Well, listen, I think you can achieve a lot on digitally too. One pithy comment 
will travel a long way in this environment. But I know, Murphy, you, you want to take a second to talk uh, to speak up for billboards, too? <laughs> you know, I, I think we underestimate the power of short, sharp copy, be it digitally, be it anywhere else. Problem with most digital ads is they're, they're awful and, and people are expert at avoiding them. Good copy is important. And we're at a point in the campaign where a little bit of spend on flashy things, I, I don't care if it's skywriting, will get a media hook and will get millions of dollars of attention. And the best thing is Trump walks around with a bozo the clown bubble on his forehead. You push it, he goes crazy. So the Biden guys, and I've said this before, ought to have a whole department of pushing that thing every day. Well, that's the thing of yours that I've agreed with most, Murphy, is not so much, I, I'm not sure about newspapers or billboards or skywriting, but I, but I, <laughs> but I, I do think that uh, at least from what I can see, and I'm sure some friend of mine on the Biden campaign is going to reach out and say that I've, I've overlooked the fact that they've done something in this front. But like, you know, you've said before, there's just a ton of relatively uh, underemployed but very, very sharp Hollywood uh, meme makers, digital jokesters, uh, people who work in the realm of, of social media and digital media who are like at the moment, especially with the pandemic, have a lot of time on their hands. And it, it seems strange to me that we've not heard that those guys have reached out, outsourced a lot of this and brought in a team of rapid response digital geniuses. I mean, I got, you know, a, a couple dozen of, uh, journalists of this vein at the recount who are who are pretty sharp and pretty funny and they're not for hire, but like there's a lot of these kids out there, right? And and and, and especially on you where you live, Mike, there's a lot of talented lefties out there who would like to, would happily rise to the task of being a rapid response digital oh, team sure. to eviscerate Donald Trump on an hourly basis on Twitter, TikTok, and 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 Snapchat. Yeah, a lot of political people, and I was one of them before I started selling a bunch of scripts out here. They they don't understand the working culture out here. But you need a writers' room like you're you're writing Colbert material every night, and then you need a digital team to put legs on it. I mean, they ought to be doing. And I pitched this like five times: a Mystery Science Theater five thousand sort of heckle viral video off the Daily Trump you know, stuff with comedians. And you'd have a line around the block of comedy people who want to be part of it. So I'm hoping it'll come because there's a huge resource. My sense is that they're torquing up very quickly, and I'd be surprised if this isn't uh, part of that. All I'm saying is that Trump is a target-rich environment, and uh, they they need to take advantage of it so that uh, all the missiles aren't firing one way here. Let's stop to do a little commerce, and then we'll be right back. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nauseous, nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects. Zero for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. 
then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. All right. So many questions, so little time. Our first question comes from... From Marshall. Marshall has a question for Mike Murphy. It's one of the most potent lines of attack of an incumbent in the history of American politics. Reagan's ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? Well, I love listening to your nuanced commentary. I think that's a way of saying he doesn't really love listening to our nuanced commentary. But anyway, why doesn't Joe Biden just repeat that question every hour of every day? Marshall, I agree. That is a great prosecuting question. I saw in one of the bevy of polls recently that the wrong track, do you think things in the country are going on the right track? Are they pretty seriously gotten off in the wrong direction? A good barometer is hitting 60, 60 supermajority percent. And in times like that, that is the question. That's part of how you want to frame the question in people's minds when they sit in the ballot or in this year fill out their absentee vote-by-mail ballot. So hell yes, Joe. I would stencil that on your uh, mask, and, uh, and, 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 and I'd make a meal out of it every day. Can I just day. say my view of this is that there is a slight alteration to this that is Trump-specific, which is, can we do another four years like we did these last four? Uh, I think that there is a real Trump fatigue, uh, fatigue with the chaos, uh, fatigue with the nastiness, fatigue with the juvenile uh, side trips that we have to take every day. Uh, and there's real concern about it uh, among a majority of American voters. So I think just asking people to confront, are you going to sign up for another four years of this, um, is uh, is really a more pointed way of making the same point. Well, with, with the framing that this has hurt you, do you want to sign up to be hurt more? So it's not a, you know, it's not just rhetorical about Trump fatigue because he's tacky and uh, offends New York Times. And, you know, it's got to have meaty teeth. But I agree. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think the link is the chaos that reigns around him that does hurt people. And the pain of chaos. Seems hard, seems hard to believe the core of this is not in the end. It's like one of the many flavors and variations on on making the campaign a referendum about his leadership during the virus where, you know, are we better? I mean, whatever you want to say about the economy, like, you know, we're, you know, the hundred thousand people dead and the economy is in, 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 in re fully wrecked, you know, on, and there's a clear line to Trump's incompetent management of this, you know, can we afford, given what happened in this four years, given that we allowed this to happen, can we, do you really want to risk that plus all the chaos and all the crazy making, but there's just, there's so much about, about where we currently stand, wherever we stood six months ago, that 
it seems like it's pretty, pretty resonant to people if you ask them if they really want to like, you know, go through another one of these pandemic cycles again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, X, for you, this comes from our friend Kenny. I read a recent analysis that said Biden has a better shot at winning in November by trying to flip Arizona instead of Wisconsin. Assuming that Biden held on to all the states that Hillary won and added Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, he would get to the magic 270 electoral votes. What do you think of a strategy of foregoing Wisconsin and concentrating instead on Arizona? Look, I think Arizona is a really good prospect. I'm sitting in Arizona right now, and I think Arizona is a strong prospect uh, for Biden. You know, 54% of the vote comes from Maricopa County, Phoenix, and the suburban areas around it. Trump does not do well uh, in suburban areas. Uh, And uh, there is a large Hispanic vote here that may redound to Biden's uh, uh, benefit. I, I think that, and he's been polling ahead here. I think Arizona's a good shot, but I would not forego Wisconsin. I would, I would, I would fight it out on both. I think you want to have a broad enough battlefield so that you um, that you uh, can uh, secure the two seventy. And I don't think you want to put all your eggs in one basket or the other. I think you have to make some uh, flinty-eyed judgments. There are states that are looking good right now where you just may not be able to play because Trump has a some something like a $300 million advantage uh, or will. And uh, so you have to use your resources in a wise way. I thought Clinton made a mistake in 2016 by putting more money in Arizona than she did in Michigan, and she needed to lock Michigan down first. But uh, I think there's room probably for both Arizona and Wisconsin, and I would fight both of them out to the max. I totally agree. There is room. No need to give up a good shot for another good shot and keep an eye on Florida. Conventional wisdom for three years has said, it. you know, they're in the bag for Trump and Florida. I've never believed that. I think he's totally vulnerable there. You can break his back. Yeah, no, I think Florida is 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 the key, and that's going to be an expensive proposition, but that's an investment they're going to have to make. I think the question for you guys, like the, to me, the, the real question that they're going to face is the question of Georgia, because I'm, I'm looking at some polling that uh, non-public polling that has that race really that, that comports with the public polling, which basically says Georgia's a toss-up right now. I'm, I'm looking at some at some a big sample poll private that's got Biden right now at 45.3 and Trump at 45.6 in Georgia, which is another sign of how bad the situation is for Donald Trump. But I think if you're running the Biden campaign, it's going to be hard to resist Georgia. I mean, you're going to be you're going to be tempted. I don't know if you should do it or not, but you're going to it's going to be out there. That's going to be the as Arizona it's was more the, of a last dollar. Yeah, I mean, I just think know, it's just you, a question you, of resources. You can only you yeah. you you have to lock down those states that are more than uh, an alluring uh, uh, possibility. You have to lock down those states. You have to have, and if you have resources left, then you can start looking elsewhere. But my guess is that they're not going to be in that position, and so, uh, but we'll see. Uh, I mean, obviously, one of the things that these campaigns are going to be doing uh, that uh, both campaigns is uh, extensive polling and analytics on a regular basis to try and ascertain whether they're on the right path in these places. But there are six states, uh, you named them, John, at the beginning, where I think that they have to play intensively. And if they have the resources left beyond that to play intensively elsewhere, then they can expand. But they have to win 
or play to win in those states. Yeah, you you cover your six, and if things are going well enough in the campaign that you're coming in for the close and your six are really working, you're going to have a couple of states pop up that are going to be better than normal where you might have a little money to try to steal one of them. The worst thing you can do is start early and late in a long-shot state and defund the ones you got to have. But if things are going totally your way, you can try to steal one or two that'll be dangling there late. The truth is the campaign will not make the difference in Georgia. It'll it'll get close on a national Trump collapse, and then you might be able to steal it late. But the campaign has to be done right in the big six, and you're not going to have extra money if you're Biden. So you got to be flinty. In 2008, John McCain pulled out of Michigan, which was a battleground uh, in September. That allowed uh, us to move resources to Indiana and steal Indiana. But that was, you know, that was situational. We saw the movement. We were able to move our troops and our resources uh, to uh, to another state. Hey, I got one uh, for you, Heilman, from Nancy, who asks, how realistic is it that Trump ousts Pence and puts Nikki Haley on the ticket? I presume that's prompted by the notion that there's going to be a woman on the ticket for Biden. And Trump has problem with women. I want to break that question in half and 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 start with what well, how realistic is that Donald Trump ousts Mike Pence? I think highly, if not if not highly likely, certainly highly plausible. Um, I think Donald Trump's commitment to Mike Pence as his vice president is you know negligible, and he will do whatever he needs to do uh, if, if that's in his his interest to win. And I think there's no there's been plenty of signs of of discord, and we've seen. Uh, Trump, various, it's been a parlor game in Washington for the last three years is when is Mike Pence going to go? And so nothing about Pence strikes me as particularly stable. The second half of the question is, is Nikki Haley become the, is the Nikki Haley the choice if Trump decides to move on Pence? And I, I go back to something Murphy said earlier, which is, I just don't know any nominee, uh, incumbent or challenger, who wants to put someone on the ticket who's more of a star in the media's eyes than they are. And Donald Trump is acutely aware of what would happen if he put Nikki Haley on the ticket, which would be an explosion of love, devotion, fawning profiles, especially from the places that he says he hates but actually cares a lot about. The New York Times and other places would go absolutely ballistic for Nikki Haley. And Donald Trump is, does, I don't care whether Nikki Haley helps him or doesn't help him, I don't think, truly, I think Donald, like no one is going to, in this election, no one voting is voting on who the Republican uh, running mate is Donald Trump is the dominant fact in the election, so I don't think it would help him or help him or hurt him either way. But I think it would make him crazy to have Nikki Haley on the ticket and getting all the adulation, all the focus she would get. I've been predicting for two years this would happen, and I guess I'll stick with my prediction, but I don't believe it anymore. <laughs> I think for 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 there you go, another gap for that reason, but simply because I think Nikki Haley, who is the most ambitious person I think in in politics today. I think she'll have a series of dental emergencies and be unavailable because she knows cashing her chip now is not as much in her interest as cashing it later. Uh, eight months ago, pre-pandemic, she would have taken, she would have killed her grandmother to get it. But now, I I don't think she would go for it. Plus, what you said about bigger star. I think that Pence does have a constituency in the evangelical community. Uh, I'm not sure that Trump is going to upset the apple cart uh, now. I think he'll go in with a hand. That he's dealt, but I but I agree with both you guys. That it's not sentimentality that binds him to anybody. And if he saw it in his interest to dump Pence, that he would do so in whatever place the convention lands. Hang on, guys. We can take a little break for a word from our sponsors.
So it's time for a last call. It's last call. There you go. So I want to say a word. You know, uh, you, uh, John Heilman, and your folks at the recount uh, replayed a uh, a clip of Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota in a really heartfelt plea to people not to politicize the wearing of masks, not to make it a sign of ideology or party, uh, but to do it for, well, let's listen to it. I would really love to see in North Dakota that we could just skip this thing that other parts of the nation are going through where they're creating a, uh, a divide, either it's ideological or political or something uh, around mask versus no mask. This is a, uh, I would say, senseless uh, dividing line. Uh, and, it, and I would ask people to uh, try to dial up your empathy and your understanding. If someone is wearing a mask, uh, they're not doing it to represent what political party they're in or what candidates they support. They might be doing it because they've got a five-year-old child who's, who's been going through cancer treatments. They, they might have vulnerable adults in their life uh, who, are, who are currently up COVID and they're fighting. So good on him. I mean, that to me, I, I tweeted after that, uh, this is leadership. And uh, would that all our leaders uh, assume that same posture and took it out of the realm of, uh, of po- uh, partisan politics? Uh, this is about saving lives about respecting others. Masks are not just about protecting yourself. They're mostly about protecting other people. So when he said, dial up your empathy, I'm all for that. I'll just say quickly, you know, we put that, we found that video. Um, uh, my, my team found it, uh, I believe, on local North Dakota television and, and pulled the clip and put it on Twitter. It's got now two and a half million views there. And of all the things we've ever posted, it got more, a higher number of interactions than anything else. We've had some viral videos that have had 10 million views, but this thing, Really set off a, 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 a really set off a, a kind of a, a mass response, and it got replayed all over the place. But what was fascinating was just to see the number of people, you know, reacting. There's the obviously the normal numbers of trolls and haters and people, you know, saying snarky things about Republicans and attacking Trump and attacking Burgum. But most people were just like, "My God, how amazing it is to hear humanity and empathy from a Republican governor." Unfortunately for the Republican Party, this is not no longer their brand. And to see, hear this guy speaking that way, it really struck a chord with people. And it tells you something about the hunger there is, I think, among a lot of people in the country to get back to a place where, regardless of party, people can say those kinds of things and talk that kind of way. Yeah, that, that governor showed more courage in those tears and that sentiment uh, within the Republican Party than Donald Trump has ever shown during any one moment in his presidency. And I guarantee you that Trump is ridiculing him privately for those tears, which... Uh, Shows what a weak, uh, weak man Donald Trump truly is. I salute that governor. And I want to finish just with a salute to our veterans since we just came out of Memorial Day, including Joe Murphy, my dad, who wore the olive and carried the rifle uh, for the U.S. Army. Uh, a draftee who was honorably discharged. Might have been a few close calls. But uh, uh, to all our veterans, thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Here, here. Thank you. All right, guys. It's great to be with you. Uh, we'll be again soon, uh, together again soon. The circus uh, will return when, Heilman? If we, uh, if uh, the pandemic permitting and, uh, and everything else, uh, we, we are back in production in August and going to be on for a really long run, basically starting in the middle of August and running all the way through until about Thanksgiving. So uh, assuming that we're all, that everyone 
that the world is in a place where we're able to travel and be on the road, we'll be traveling and being on the road. And the recount is available online every day. Highly recommended. Great to be with you. Murphy, I'll see you next week. Thank you, pal. Good to talk to you. And John, always good to talk to you. We'll see you next week on the Hacks on Tap. But one last word. If you want to review us, go to iTunes, give us a rating, or send us your own mailbag questions at hacksontap at gmail.com. Had to work that in. Now, we'll see you next week.